Welcome to the 232nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion in partnership with the LePage Center for History and the Public Interest of Villanova University. I will be talking with Taisha Maddox and Daniel Joslin about the pandemic and the history of mutual aid. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live, Twitch, and Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter, using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, March 3rd, 2021, there are 2,556,124 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 518,796 deaths reported in the United States and 187,187 deaths reported in Mexico. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Andover nursing home worker died of COVID because of lack of protective gear, lawsuit says. This was written by Abbott Koloff and appeared in NorthJersey.com February 24th, 2021. A woman who worked at a Sussex County nursing home where authorities found bodies piled up in a makeshift morgue last year died from complications of COVID-19 last year because the home failed to provide proper protective gear, her family alleges in a lawsuit filed in late February. Home, Andover Subacute and Rehabilitation 1 and 2 in Andover Township, was criticized in a scathing federal report last year that determined lack of proper care has caused or was likely to cause serious injury or death to residents. One of the state's largest nursing homes with two facilities next to each other it had beds for more than 700 patients. The day the report was released, the National Guard was sent to the facilities to provide non-medical help. National Guard medics previously were deployed at the state-run Veterans Memorial Home in Paramus, New Jersey, where dozens of people died from COVID-19 complications. About 38% of the state's COVID-related deaths have been among nursing home residents and staff. Three prior lawsuits were filed against the Andover facilities last year, alleging that four patients died from COVID-19 complications related to poor care provided by the facility. The patients, three men and a woman, died between April 1st and May 2nd. This is the first lawsuit related to the death of an Andover employee. Mary Beatrice Guerra, 54, a Hudson County resident and mother of three, had worked at the facility for two decades providing critical care for patients in need and was working in the facility's administrative offices last March during the COVID-19 outbreak, according to court documents. The Guerra lawsuit was filed in State Superior Court in Hudson County. 
He began to feel ill on March 26th of 2020, but continued working without restrictions, the lawsuit said. She later tested positive for COVID-19 and was admitted to a hospital where she was isolated and limited to communicating with her family by text messages. She died on April 6th, about a week before authorities found 18 bodies in holding areas over two days after they received a call about a body stored in a shed at the facility. Juan C. Fernandez, the attorney who filed the lawsuit, said Ms. Guerra loved her job at Andover where she helped with scheduling and other administrative matters. He said there was no regard to giving the administrative office protective gear. Her husband, Ricardo Guerra, also contracted COVID-19, testing positive just days after his wife, Fernandez said. He was treated by a doctor as an outpatient, Fernandez said, and still has pulmonary issues. He constantly tells me how he couldn't be with his wife while she was sick, Fernandez said. He was struggling with his own COVID and couldn't be there with her. On Easter Sunday, six days after Mary Guerra died, police found five bodies at the facility after receiving a tip that a body was stored in a shed at the home. Police found 13 more bodies that Monday. At the time, state officials said 35 residents had died at the home since the end of March 2020, with 19 of the deaths linked to COVID-19. The report caused state officials to monitor the facility and led Governor Phil Murphy to say that a case like this one shakes you to your bones. The lawsuit brought by Guerra's family states that workers at the Andover facilities were unable to get adequate protective gear, which was kept under lock and key. It pointed to media reports about the facility at the time saying workers were told to figure out on their own how to get protective gear, that sick patients were moved from room to room without masks being used, and that beds where patients died were not disinfected. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, one that I've been looking forward to a great deal, and let me introduce my guest to you. Daniel Joslin is a PhD candidate in history at New York University, whose work recovers a largely forgotten transnational mystical feminist socialist movement at the turn of the 20th century. He's a core member of Mutual Aid New York City and is in the process of building an online open source library by and for organizers across movements in and around New York City to co-locate, find, and preserve materials vital to their organizing work. He's also the co-editor of notariot.com, an educational resource teaching people about the roots of the 2020 uprising in the black radical tradition. Taisha Maddox is an assistant professor at Fordham University in the Department of African and African American Studies. She received her PhD in history from New York University in 2016 she received a bachelor's degree in history and Africana studies and an MPS in Africana studies, both from Cornell University. Her current manuscript is titled From Invisible to Immigrants, Political Activism and the Construction of Caribbean American Identity, 1890 to 1940. The project examines the significance of early 20th century Anglophone Caribbean immigrant mutual aid societies and benevolent associations. In New York, Taisha Maddox, and Dan Joslin, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is, is looking there. And I actually really like it when I have 
two or more guests who are in the same city, maybe you're both in New York, because they can also tell us what's happening in different neighborhoods. Taisha, can I start with you, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I live downtown Brooklyn, um, and it has been very interesting the last year, <laughs> going not only through the um, the COVID-19 ordeal, where I've seen a very, I live in a very busy section of Brooklyn, New York, to see it be like a complete empty ghost town um, has been very startling. Um, I'm a born and raised New Yorker. So for me, this was like, what's going on? <laughs> There's literally no one here. <laughs> um, so that has been shocking to see. Um, I live not too far from a hospital um, in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. So every night um, at seven o'clock when people were still cheering on our um, health workers, um, everyone in my neighborhood was coming together and participating in that. And we could, you know, see the hospital there and actually like send appreciation and love to the doctors and medical workers and hospital um, staff who are risking their lives to keep us all safe and, and healthy. Um, yeah. And then the the uprisings of 2020 happened. And again, I'm in a busy intersection. So every day I just see, you know, people mm -hmm. marching in the street. And many times because I'm sitting at my desk and I'm looking out the window, I just feel compelled to join in. So, so it's been very interesting living um, in this intersection that I live in in Brooklyn, in downtown Brooklyn. It's amazing that juxtaposition you describe. And I can picture where you are. The streets that ordinarily are full all the time are empty. And then, but by June, they're full in a yeah. different way. That's really yeah. quite something. Um, let me ask you, are there still any, because those, um, um, you know, the banging of pots and pans and the, mm -hmm. the yelling and cheering for the essential workers was an early phenomenon, the pandemic. Is that, there's no more of that? It's not going on anymore? I mean, that was such an interesting sort of form of coping and solidarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't noticed it, not in my neighborhood. And people in my neighborhood were very adamant every day. That's how I knew it was seven o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it kind of it kind of has died off. Yeah. Dan, let me bring you in. Same question. Where are you calling in from and what's the pandemic looking like there? Um, yeah, I it's, it's sort of interesting. I don't live in a in a in a very uh, peopled place. I live in a little side street right by the George Washington Bridge in Washington Heights. Um, and I mean, you know, it's a pandemic. I can't complain. Best pandemic I've lived through. Also worst pandemic I've lived through. So we're sort of at an intersection there. Um, living in Washington Heights has been really interesting because I guess all of New York is really segregated, but Washington Heights is also really segregated. Um, and I live in the way that geography or geopolitics of this area is in sort of this, this encroaching sort of gentrified sort of wave um, where you have a very rich neighborhood, very rich and white neighborhood right north of me. Um, and then a mixed income slash Dominican um, neighborhood sort of in every other direction with this having been that and it's slowly being, you know, colonized, I guess would be the word. Um, and what that means is that the neighborhood just south of me is the poorest in my, or one of the poorest in Manhattan and then the highest incidence of COVID-19 in all of Manhattan. Um, in fact, there's a new strain of COVID-19 that was just discovered here, uh, or that, that, sorry, that was discovered in New York that originated in Washington Heights. Um, the, the pandemic has been fascinating here because of how you can see all of those divides being deepened, how you can see um, 
how many people in to the east of this neighborhood are just still working, still out on the street because they have to be. Um, how all the street vendors just sort of, they don't have another livelihood and they, they receive no support. So they've been hustling and working. Um, and how just north of me, if I ever go to a park there, hang out with friends in this little park up there, how the discourse there is one of complete, you know, everything is different. Every, you know, no one could have ever foreseen this. And then if you go just a little bit east and I talk to my friends there, they're just like, well, I mean, it's a pandemic and it's horribly dangerous to be doing this, but our jobs haven't fundamentally changed. They've just gotten mm. sort of worse. So. Well, that's, you know, I would imagine if we got out the statistics and, and looked at what you're describing, so you're sort of describing Inwood Hill Park and then the neighborhood in the Bronx just across there, which has a high median income compared to where to where you are. No, no, I'm describing in, inner relations within Washington Heights. Oh, within and, Washington Heights. Okay. And then the place I was referring to is 181st and St. Nicholas, because the I division see. got stark. If you go back to 92. That's amazing. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go back to '92 to the Heights riots. I mean, um, it's uh, Heights riots. They they occurred right at the intersection of Broadway, which is still sort of this mark of segre- segregation. Either way, it's fascinating. And then when and then there's still protests going on up here, and and a variety of 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 uh, protests against police brutality uh, and against systemic racism. But it's very complicated because the majority of the residents here are Dominican. Um, which means that there's a series of, of different relationships that they have with the police, often more sort of a guy I was talking to yesterday, um, you know, on the one hand was like, oh, the 34th precinct, our precinct, deeply corrupt and horrible, but also we need more of those cops, um, which is a which is a very common sentiment I've run into around here. Mm-hmm. Just talking to both of you, just with the reports here from Upper Manhattan and Brooklyn makes me realize I need to do a five boroughs COVID calls where I have somebody from, from each one. The variability is astounding, really. I, well, I'd like to um, get a little bit into the content um, of your project and your work. Let me start by asking you a bit about the, the kind of research that you're engaged with before the pandemic, and then sort of pick that up where that meets the stream of the pandemic work. And Taisha, I'm going to bring you in on, on this first. Can you tell me a little bit about the kind of research you were doing before 2020? Yes. Um, so my project looks at, it's a, I like to call it a, a transnational Caribbean immigrant story. Um, and so I look, <laughs> don't make that face, Dan. I look at um, Caribbean immigration um, post-emancipation um, in the Anglophone Caribbean. And I follow the migrational movement of these Caribbean immigrants um, moving first um, within the Caribbean region um, for job opportunities and looking for autonomy and a better lives for themselves. And then how that um, immigration then eventually spurs the 20th century immigration, um, early 20th century immigration to New York City. And then once in New York City, they began to uh, form these mutual aid societies and benevolent associations that become very integral to their identity as Caribbean um, Americans, and then eventually as Black Americans, as they do work with um, African-American mutual aid groups and um, fraternities and secret societies and things like that. And so I was really invested in this project of like what this mutual aid did for this immigrant group and how they became politicized through these organizations. Because in many of the group states, tend to start as um, 
welcoming societies for immigrants, helping them find their places, helping them get settled. Um, but then once they are settled, once they do have jobs, once they do feel comfortable being in America, it's the 1910s, 1920s. There's a lot going on for black immigrants or black people in general in America. And so they become deeply enmeshed in the politics and activism of the day um, in New York City. Because, of course, New York City is a hotbed at this time with lots of groups um, rising up. And so they become really deeply involved in the political activism that's going on through these mutual aid societies and benevolent associations. So that's what I was studying and um, researching. I was actually in the process of finishing my manuscript um, that is that was going to be sent out. And then COVID happened. (laughs) I was actually on leave that semester. I had a postdoc at Rutgers University, uh, which was really unfortunate because I didn't get to spend the rest of my postdoc year at Rutgers um, because everything closed. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, that's where I was in in my work. I'm sorry about the suspension of the work. I've had so many guests on who've had products, projects and products coming out, books coming out that have been stalled by this. And I wish you the best in regaining the momentum with it. It sounds like an amazing project. And I wanted to ask us a, a follow-up about the that sort of early history of mutual aid, which we'll talk more about with Dan in a second. But the um, what's the legal status of these of these groups? What do they have to register in some way, or is it a little bit more informal and then there's an evolution process that they gain some political political steam and then become sort of legitimate in the eyes of the law? So So beforehand, before 1924, uh, immigration laws were a little more lax (laughs) in the U.S. And so people could enter um, a little more easily um, than they could post-1924. Then we also have a lot of the immigrants that I look at are from the U.S. what becomes the U.S. Virgin Islands. So in the beginning, they don't have any sort of legal status, but after 1917, uh, many of them become American citizens through, um, can't remember the name of the act right now, but they become citizens through uh, the US procurement of the Virgin Islands. Um, So there's a mixture in status because there are groups of immigrants who have been in the US um, since the turn of the century, Um, And then there are groups that are coming in. So it's very varied in terms of their legality. Many people who initially come in are coming in under the guise that they're going to be in the U.S. temporarily. So they don't apply for naturalization. Um, And then I think I start seeing in like the 19, the late 1900, the late 19 teens and the 1920s, a shift in people realizing maybe they do want to stay. And so there's an uptick in terms of like, naturalizing, and then also so that they can be active and run for like political office. I see. Yeah. I see. And what are the implications for health care at that time? I mean, uh, the mutual aid societies also function in terms of my understanding of some mutual aid societies in the, Mm -hmm. in the South and Texas, where I looked at that uh, around the same time period um, is a lot of times they really focus on what you would consider burial insurance and sort of yes. um, mass medical, you know, if somebody has a devastating injury, there's some money to help the family not starve or to bury someone who's been injured on the job or a victim of violence. But that's really mostly what they were focused on. Seems like what you're describing, these groups are a little bit more engaged in the sort of full activities of their members. They are full activity because they definitely are burial and funeral 
burial, funeral insurance um, societies as well. That's a carryover from the Caribbean um, that I talk about in an early chapter of my book. Um, there were these West Indian, what they call friendly societies that served as insurance and burial funeral um, organizations. So there's a carryover of that that is definitely incorporated in every single mutual aid and benevolent association that I've looked at. There's definitely a, a fund for that and there's an emphasis on that. But they start to like look at their members as whole people and realizing that they have a lot more to offer them than just in sickness and um, in death. Uh, so yeah, so they become completely, I guess what from like short, what do you call it, uh, uh, short-term insurance, whereas you have like whole life insurance. <laughs> mm -hmm. okay. So then they become part of that. They definitely also serve as sort of an early form of workers comp. So if work, if uh, members get sick or injured, um, there's a fund that is paid out to them and they're very like regimented on how the funds are paid, who the funds are paid for, mm -hmm. what, what uh, counts and what doesn't count. Um, so yeah, it's a whole system. Dan, let me bring you in with a similar question and thank you Taisha for that introduction to the work. I cannot wait to read this book. Uh, um, same to you, the kind of work you're doing and sort of what were you working on before the pandemic? Cause then we're gonna shift and talk about how the work has transformed over this last year. I mean, nothing is caused to Asia. Um, fundamentally, that is that is the case. Um, but my dissertation has sort of been overall focused on these sort of these hippies, this countercultural movement at the turn of the 20th century, um, and looking at how a certain kind of white woman-led um, feminist socialism, a sort of feminist sort of these ideas, how they became popularized across the United States and how they reshape our ideas of socialism and also help us understand the ways in which, um, one, like socialists were kind of interestingly anti-imperialist, um, how central religion was to women's socialism, how central women were and, fem and feminist women in particular to the production of socialism. And then also how central they how, how much socialism benefited from or, or relied upon a certain concept of whiteness and how these women were sort of deeply involved in the creation even in their in their uh, anti-imperialism of producing a certain kind of like brahmanical uh, uh whiteness it's 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 not one as cool or as two as relevant as, as taisha's work um but you know it's what i, <laughs> I spend my life on <laughs> or part of it and just to, to ask you a little bit more about that, could you talk about how the, the time period specifically that you're, that you're looking at there and the kinds of sources that you're working with to draw out that tradition? Because uh, I'm interested in continuities in your story and also in Taisha's story. Yeah, so we work in the same time period. Or very, okay. um, I, I work on from around 1890 to 1920 is where it ends off. My source base is largely um, periodicals, magazines, um, and personal papers. I'm really interested in networks of influence, which I think is one thing that, that both Tayshia and I share um, in this question of how do these networks come to be? What are these relational networks? Like for me, it's this question, how does a text become super popular? Um, and how do ideas become popular? And then and how does that always happen through a relational network? Not like random readers, but it's this person to this person to this person, and then it suddenly becomes huge. 
And how enmeshed in it is the is your story in the history of the women's labor movement in New York and the garment trades or other related trades at that time? So I don't focus only on New York. Uh, it's mostly the okay. people that I'm writing about are sort of in New York and Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of these workers, what's really interesting is people usually talk about a, a deep division between sort of the bourgeois um, women's movement and the labor movement. And that's something that I don't know. It, it's not. It's just not as present in a lot of the sources. Uh, the Women's Journal, all these major mainstream uh, suffragist journals, were fascinated with most feminist uh, sort of with, with feminist texts, feminist idea. I, sorry, socialist texts, socialist ideas. And on the flip side, um, you know, the at a big strike in Patterson, as well as in a big garment strike downtown, they were um, women were chanting and reading aloud many of the poems that I work on, at least poems by by multiple. Mm. Wow. Um, women who, whose works I study. Um, so there's, you know, there's always that. So just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Dan Choslin and Taisha Maddox about the history of mutual aid organizing. And we're going to kind of make a turn now from the sort of historical introduction we've been getting to looking for some ways that that history intersects with the present. And um, you have a project that you've been working on together, which is you've received some funding from the LePage Center at Villanova. Um, Taisha, let me um, start with you on this, if you could talk a little bit about the project um, mutual aid organizing. I think for a lot of people this year, it may have been the first time I, they've heard of mutual aid, or if they've heard of it, it was sporadic, and it's actually been covered in the news in 2020 and 2021, which is not the normal pattern that mutual aid is newsworthy. I did a quick scan yesterday preparing for this talk, um, and pretty consistently throughout the year, major news organizations were actually writing about mutual aid, which was um, kind of astounding to me that it was getting that much mainstream coverage and very gratifying as well. So Taisha, can you talk a little bit about the project you're engaged in? Actually, I think um, Dan should talk about it first okay. um, because Dan was involved um, with mutual aid NYC and he brought me on. Um, okay. So I think he should talk about more about the genesis of what the project was before. And then I can talk about what we've made it. <laughs> I love it. I love it when guests defer to each other in this kind of way. It happens all the time. So Dan, let me start with you on that. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so the, the genesis of Mutual Aid NYC is in sort of the prehistory of it is in the Occupy Sandy movement or sort of the ways in which during Hurricane Sandy, a number of New Yorkers came together in a variety of ways um, to support one another, how a number of activists um, came together to, um, to very concretely uh, provide aid, provide, um, because FEMA failed, because the New York State was not ready, had no concrete disaster relief plans. And so, for example, one of the people who is, who's heading up the hotline at Mutual Aid NYC, you know, ran a, a kitchen that fed thousands of people um, during, during Hurricane Sandy. 
Um, and so a number of those people, of course, dispersed into different groups. Um, and then it was during a call of between the caring majority, which is a citywide, or I think a statewide group, uh, and a number of other sort of stakeholder organizations where they decided to start this group called Mutual Aid NYC, um, which then sort of ran around in a number of different directions, trying to support the growth of mutual aid groups and mutual aid as a concrete movement. I say movement in quotation marks because it's it's not like there's any one you know, movement for black lives. There's a concrete set of things one can look to and a concrete set of demands that are being made. Whereas mutual aid NYC or mutual aid, uh, mutual aid NYC does not represent the movement of mutual aid uh, in New York City or elsewhere. It's just another group that supports other groups. Uh, but I came on relatively early and have been a part of a number of different efforts to support groups. Um, and also one thing that we, I sort of realized really quickly as, as a historian is uh, sort of two interrelated issues. It's, a, it's because mutual aid had so long been done by and within marginalized communities. And to, to the extent that it was just sort of a, a given, um, there is often much less coverage of it and much less of a formal, that, at least that I was able to find, coverage and history of it. So when, when, when newer groups are starting, it's hard to be, it was, it was harder to find documents to be like, here's things, like here's, here's concrete things you can read to understand the history of this and not just, you know, do more bourgeois charity, do more like, here's a thing now, you know, leave. <laughs> um, and, and so that's what drew me to really uh, all of the things that Taisha and I've been working on together is helping people understand the, the sort of the deep roots of the history of mutual aid, sort of mutual support, um, and helping in, in some ways create spaces where that can be put forth in, in a more popular way and validated in a way that the news hasn't. I mean, frankly, the news has often focused on people who are and look much more like me, live on the wider neighborhoods of the of wider sides of neighborhoods, and and sort of shockingly been like, people on the Upper East Side help others, um, and by right. people they mean white people, and by, by others they they mean poor people, vaguely described. And, mm. and often they, they neglect the actual roots and history of mutual aid. Um, and I think that's part of why it's received so much more attention. And so I think what what's- Interesting. Why, one of the many reasons why Taisha's work is brilliant is because she's been working on this for a long, long time, has been making, uh, right, how long ago did you, it doesn't matter. Just, you've been dissertating, you, you, have, you have such brilliant and deep rooted knowledge of so many different groups that is just lacking in so much of the conversation. Um, and I have such deep respect for that. What's the scope of what Mutual Aid NYC is doing, Dan? Just give us a little bit of a sense of the, the number of groups that are involved. Um, so the, the answer to that question is complicated because everything's amorphous. Um, there mm. have been times, I think, when there's been sort of um, it depends on which of the different parts of it, because it's a large sort of behemoth um, of, a, of a thing. Um, meaning there's been times when there's been sort of dozens and dozens of different groups involved in different aspects of showing up to different things or collaborating with one another in different sort of sub-teams. And there's been times when there was distinct lulls in activity when like, you know, it was maybe like five or six groups. Uh, of the literally hundreds, Mutual Aid NYC maintains a catalog of different mutual aid groups across the city, of the hundreds, of only a small handful of groups at all involved in this project. That's why I'm saying never, not now, not in the past, has this group ever, and or even sought to sort of be the you know, representative of Mutual Aid and NYC or speak for Mutual Aid and NYC. 
uh, I feel like there's an important disclaimer to offer because it's that'd be such a sort of grossly arrogant thing to to do or to say. There's one other thing I would that struck me in your description of the way the news media has covered this. There's also been a sort of fascination with um, apps and technological interventions as ways to craft mutual aid and not just social media, but also the next door and, and things like that, which I, I'm sort of curious of your opinion about that. I try not to be cynical about such things because maybe they depart from a good place, but it's when the media discovers or when people discover something new and it's actually got a deep history, as you pointed out, rooted in what have largely been immigrant marginalized groups, that's, um, that's troubling. Yeah, Taisha, I don't know if you'd like to speak on that question. Otherwise, I, I have, you know, I have a ton of opinions on this exact thing. <laughs> um, Go ahead, Dan, and then I'll bring Taisha in to tell us about her, her take on it. It's complicated. The, the biggest aid that Mutual of NYC, the biggest thing it's been concretely able to do, in all frankness, has been there's a great team of brilliant tech workers who've been able to build back-end systems for groups hmm. across the city and even outside the city. And that's something that I deeply respect. Um, as a communist, I don't particularly think tech is like is going to save us. Uh, and I think that it's dangerous and stupid to think that 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 it will. Um, I don't think the new trade NYC does. I think that it can be useful. I think that a lot of the coverage of mutual aid across the city um, has been in such a it's Reaganomics. Reagan, Ayn Rand was even asked, you know, is it a good thing if, if, you know, I help other people? And she said, as long as there's no obligation for you to help other people, and as long as you're doing it for purely selfish motives, yes, it is a good thing. And, and I think that a lot of what, what counts as mutual aid in the city um, does not actually challenge power structures. This is what's fascinating about Tasha's work. There's a million things fascinating about her work. And, and, and this is what we've been sort of trying to write into this video. The history of mutual aid is the history of it's it's not a history of of everyone like being all happy because suddenly like citizens are coming together to help each other. There is I was reading an account of a um, a field hospital in somewhere in the in the deep south set up by a disaster relief group um, mans or staffed I, I should say by by local people and and the the journalist had come in being like oh isn't it great that like all these local people are helping people get like vision and then the activist was just like are you no, it's a tragedy. It's a mm -hmm. national tragedy. It's mm -hmm. it's a tragedy of unimaginable proportions that people do, that people drove five hours for vision care. Right. Um, that's this country. <laughs> that's capitalism. And so mutual aid that it exists is celebrated as this great. It's a tra tragedy. It's a tragedy. It's the government mm -hmm. has failed us, and it fails everyone, and it fails marginalized people, and it has. And mutual aid is is always this sort of combined effort to push for actual government programs, to push for larger solutions. And in the news media, that second part gets lost. Often. It's, a, it's such a valuable framing. And Taisha, I'd like to get your, your take on it, particularly just to underline what Dan's saying. That, um, Taisha's framing. That's of course, not from, I just want to give credit where credit's due. I'm sorry. I didn't remember. That's sure. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I, well, I just wanted to bring Taisha in it and, and just to underline this, this point that there's this tension here um, about not wanting to, I mean, wanting to celebrate, I think when, when the, the impulse to create organizations 
for people who are in need doesn't have to flow necessarily through traditional power structures. But on the other hand, as Dan's pointing out, the need to do that shows the structural inequality in American society. And it goes back a long way, Taisha. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the project and maybe where your ideas intersect what Dan's been talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Dan definitely hits hits it on the head um, when he talks about this idea of mutual aid being a way in, in which people come together to to make up for where the government has failed them. Um, and this is what we see even with the organizations that I'm looking at in the early 20th century. Um, there were very few resources available for, for Black immigrant groups um, who weren't even considered immigrants at the time um, because they are often they were often assumed to be part of the um, part of the black community so many of the many of the government funded or targeted immigrant help information was generally in European languages in German or Italian or French but nothing was available for English speaking immigrants and so these immigrants, Took the took this on themselves, like providing um, welcoming services, helping um, people get acclimated. They had to do that for themselves. Um, I think in this project, what I was really excited and interested when Dan reached out to me is the fact that um, we were building, we were planning on building a, a organize uh, organizers research library slash archive. Um, because one of the things that we we discuss is it seems like a lot of this work that gets done in the moment, especially in the heat of the moment in a time like uh, the last year that we've had, a lot of the work becomes ephemeral and it just, we lose sight of it and we can't, we need some place to hold all of this to show the work that people have been doing for multiple reasons. Um, one, um, as a historian um, and a person who loves archives, um, for that like reason in itself, like being able to look back in 20, 30 years at this work that what was happening in 2020, um, it's important to see. And it's important to see, especially in um, minority neighborhoods or minority organizing, because a lot of the times we don't save our, our um, artifacts because we don't think it's important and we don't think anyone will want to look at it or need it, or we don't think that long-term. And so it was really interesting um, when Dan came to me with this idea of creating this, this archive because I immediately was like, yes, we need to. <laughs> this needs to be done. Someone needs to be collecting this information. And then for the second reason, so that organizers on the ground, um, as we've talked about many times, don't have to recreate this. This is not new. Um, mutual aid has been around and we can follow in the examples set forth for us already. Um, there are people who have been doing this work and continue to do this work. Um, and so we saw this as a way to connect these communities, people who were interested in mutual aid organizing for the first time, people who have been doing it for 20 years. How can we connect these people so that they can put their efforts together? I also think it's helpful um, and serves as a way to continue the movement beyond just what's happening in the media, right? So, or what's what's the the trending headline? So when all of a sudden we're not talking about mutual aid anymore, the membership doesn't die down. We don't lose engagement because 
it's a trend. It's actually something that's rooted in history and we can continue even beyond the trendy pressing headlines of COVID. Um, this work still needs to go on. And so we saw the archive and library as a way to connect all of these different ideas and put them together. So yeah, so that's what we were really interested in. And then should we talk about the video also? Yeah, please go ahead and just keep telling us kind of some of the <laughs> other things that you're planning to make through this. I mean, just pause for a second and put an exclamation point about the value of the archive. Mm -hmm. And a year in which for historians, this is a sort of day at the office, but I think for many Americans, mm -hmm. the idea that people um, might actually go to the streets, not only for social justice, but literally for the historical interpretation of their own history in this country. Um, I think that's been surprising to a lot of Americans and frankly overdue. And so what you're describing to me just fits into a context of 2020 and 2021 where the presence or absence of an archive is maybe being understood a little bit more um, as building towards politics, like building towards you know real representation. So I, I just wanted to, that's really valuable, I think, insight from both of you. Talk a little bit about, I know you're also producing a video to go along with this. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so in doing, did you want to, Dan, or should I continue? Okay. <laughs> He's so giving you the full speed ahead uh, <laughs> hand motions there, yeah. So Dan and I, uh, once we started this project and working with uh, the Organizing uh, Research Library for Mutual Aid NYC, um, we've been having a lot of ideas and thoughts. And so we came across the grant for, um, for Villanova and we've been saying how for the longest time, we really want people to understand the, the deep traditional history of um, mutual aid organizing and associations um, in this country. Because I did, so for instance, I did, I gave a talk to the general body of mutual aid NYC about, about my research, just about, um, Black immigrant groups who have been, you know, forming these kinds of organizations. And everyone was just so interested. They had never heard this story before. Um, and they often pointed out that there's very little that they're, that they're told about the history of mutual aid. Mo most of the work that they get or understand of mutual aid is that it's a recent phenomenon. And so they were really interested in that. And so Dan and I talked about this idea of maybe creating some kind of video because, you know, in keeping with technology that Dan doesn't like, but I do like, <laughs> we thought it would be cool if we could have something that's easy, easily digestible, something that's visual um, so that people could just get like a quick history of what mutual aid has been and connect it to what's happening now. Um, I think there's a lot of, there's a need for that. Um, there's a dearth in the historiography of connecting uh, these current movements to what happened in the past. And so we were hoping that this video could serve that purpose um, to have as maybe even a training tool for mutual aid groups so that they can see um, that there is a deeper history um, there and try to connect themselves and the work that they're doing now to that larger tradition. Dan, just to bring you in, is it a documentary in format or is it like more, tell us a little bit about the kind of what we would expect to see when you're done with it. Um, well, we're thinking of this as a, a, a sort of info, 
what's the word for this? Tisha, you had a, a you said explainer, like an explainer video. <laughs> like, like a Vox-esque explainer video. Um, but if I may bring up one thing in, in relation to Tasha's points, I don't she sometimes you think I'm going too far here, but but I really do think that there's a colonial way in which mutual aid is done and can be done. And and it is a lot of what there's there's a great line by someone who had done you know work months and months and months of work and occupy Sandy and, and and her point was she goes you know we did all this work and most of it turned we said solidarity not charity that was what everyone said ultimately most of it was very well organized charity and what the problem is and there's a great group called Queens Bridges for Accountability that's made this point before me and many many other groups. Um, uh, there's, there's an article in Regeneration Mag called Liberalism and Mutual Aid. There's a there's a group called the, uh, was it the, the Crown Heights Tenants Union, I think, in Bushwick, Workers United, who've all made similar points in, in various contexts. But basically, the mutual aid is, is not one time going out and giving something to people, nor is it organizing a food delivery service in and of itself. It is building power over time with communities uh, and, 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 and building relationships. It, mutual and so much or not so much but there's a distinct undercurrent of charity very simple very colonial charity charity in the form of you know one of my local person people running for elected office whom i won't mention said she was they were doing a mutual aid um when they you know gave turkey to to constituents on christmas and by virtue of that like because it, it is so watered down and co-opted in so many places, mutual aid often um, can be, yeah, it, it just, it, it, there, there can be this very kind of gross way that, that, that a certain group of people who find themselves to be discovering mutual aid can enact it um, and then pat themselves on the back um, and not have changed anything, but then think that they're changing the world. And then ultimately just be, someone said this to me a while ago, and I thought it was a brilliant point. I wanted to start a translating group, a mutual aid translator. Well, translate, I speak six languages, we can you know, translate or whatever. And then this person pointed out to me, de Blasio is waiting for that. De Blasio was waiting for someone to come along and devalue the labor of translators who are both a large variety, a large amount of whom are undocumented, a large um, amount of whom are, are, are immigrants who, who rely on translation to survive. They're waiting for someone to come in and say, no, 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 we could actually do all of this for free so that they can cut all these services. And that's the danger. That's part of that's sort of part of the political motivation, to be frank, behind the video is to say, like, no, mutual aid is this thing where you actually stick with people and build something mm. and, 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 and demand power, make concrete demands on power. It's not it's, it's not just, you know, here's soup for, for houseless people. Aren't I great? Yay. There's a dynamic there which people who study disasters point out frequently, and it's a bit of a bind that probably mutual aid organizations find themselves in where their need is so obvious in times of disaster and economic precarity. And, and so it's a, it's a moment of great interest and many people get drawn to it. That's a moment when you have people's attention, when products like your archive you've discussed or the video that you're making 
those have like a really important role to play at that time. And then when things go back to normal, which is normal for, um, you know, most people probably who you're describing who are building these groups already live um, in a sort of day-to-day disaster, um, if you will, in terms of economic precarity. So, you know, those who've just discovered it kind of drop it because the disaster's over and they go back to their normal daily life. And so there's that real tension in disaster research more generally. And that's why I think your work has an important thing to contribute to, to disaster research is how do you keep it going as a broader political movement, what you're describing, Dan, and not just a sort of a aid distribution, like a literal material distribution of people who are, who are in need. I, I wonder about that. Um, I don't know if either of you would like to sort of address that problem. I'm not sure there's a solution to it, but maybe Taisha sort of bring you in because I think there must be some historical grounding in that, in that too. People are drawn to this kind of work where there's in the middle of a disaster, but what happens when the disaster ends? Does history offer us any, any clues on that? Looks like Taisha, are you? Looks like um, oh, just freezing. It looks like. Let's see. Taisha, can you hear us fine? That's okay, Dan. Let me. Um, while I Taisha's can hear on. you. Oh, okay. Go ahead. I, I didn't just hear sort your of, last question, though. I'm sorry. Oh, that's fine. It probably was on my side. I was really just trying to sort of draw out a little bit more of this problem of the urgency of disaster and then the sort of transition to a so-called normal, which is problematic in a number of different dimensions. Because if if middle class people are getting back to normal, um, maybe they pay less interest um, in mutual aid. And the more radical potential here for political organization goes by the wayside. I think that's that's something I would worry about in this, but I wonder how history might demonstrate to us some patterns and maybe some patterns of how this kind of work becomes a little bit more structural in itself. Okay, sorry. I don't know what is going on. Mine, it keeps like freezing and there's like a delay. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I think, and I think that is why we saw the importance of of doing this project, of creating this archive, of um, making this kind of video, because in many times in the moment, as we, as I mentioned before, um, we see the immediate need, um, and people join in and they want to help. But then, as soon as the immediate um, threat is over, then it's like, okay, we can go back to normal and we can um, we can resume our everyday lives. But there are people who in our everyday lives are not okay. <laughs> and I think that's the point that um, Dan is making, was making um, earlier when he brought up that these are structures that we need to work on um, for long term. Um, it's not something that is just the immediate disaster relief that's needed in that moment. It's building these larger power structures of power um, to change the system. And I think a lot of the pushback sometimes with mutual aid is, well, if we do this work, are we then saying that the government um, doesn't need to fill this role? And that's not what mutual aid is saying. Mutual aid is saying that we need to work on these larger power structures and dynamics, 
But at the same time, there are people who are suffering. So we're not going to ignore that for now. We're going to take care of that immediate need. But in long term, um, we're working on fixing these structures. And I think my work definitely shows that with um, with the groups that I've that I've studied and researched, um, they were thinking about these immediate needs of immigrants, of these Black Caribbean immigrants, but then also thinking, how can we make this a better New York City? How can we fix housing? How can we fix school mm -hmm. conditions? How can we fix the overall health of um, Black Americans at this time? Um, they were definitely involved in that. So I think that's why there's value in looking at these earlier groups to see the example that the examples that they laid for, for us um, to move forward with now. May I take you back on that? I think that's Please do, yeah. I think what, what, I, what I think is so fascinating about this kind of work is that it forces you to rethink history um, and to, to and rethink time. Right, organizing time is often viewed in such incremental, sort of extreme focused stress, high stress situations. But in reality, uh, poverty is a pandemic. You know what I mean? Like, like we're we're in the midst of so many pandemics all around. Racism is a pandemic, right? I mean, capitalism, racial capitalism, is a pandemic, right? We're living in pandemic time all the time. It's just become much more clear to us now, right? I mean, the whole response to this pandemic is it's 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 not. It could have been handled much better. It just wasn't. Um, and, um, and, and I think that what, what perhaps the way I view this library is that it, one thing that when you have history and institutional knowledge of some sort, I don't mean institutional knowledge in the sense of like, oh, NYU's existed for a while, but knowledge of this movement has been around and here's ways to, to retrieve information about it and ways to know ourselves through what we have done. That allows us to build better over time. It allows us to have generational knowledge. It allows us, I mean, generational knowledge is already being passed down in a variety of different forms, but, but it allows us to have, uh, it allows, it, it lowers the bar for entrance. So when the next pandemic rolls around, which it will, right? We, we will maybe all die in the next 60 years if we do not overthrow <laughs> racial capitalism and end you know, climate change. This isn't some crazy conspiracy, you know, there's going to be an increasing amount of pandemics that hit us in our everyday lives and make it more apparent to us. As Valtar Benjamin says, the tradition of the oppressed uh, teaches us that the emergency situation in which we live is the rule. So these kinds of archives, I hope, can help provide a means when the next pandemic hits to have more power built, to, to, to engage more. Some people are going back to normal and some people have been radicalized by this. Some people have let this wash over them. And I think radicalism moves in waves. And I think what we can, the best we can hope to do is as it ebbs, um, that, that we can be building things that allow when the next flow comes, when, when the next movement coalesces, for there to be more strength and more power. And that ideally at its very best is what a library can do, uh, or what this kind of a particular set of projects, this library and, and, and the, the video can, can support. I'm not saying do, I know it, it might help a few people. Let me just, um, and Taisha, just one, we're almost up on time, but just to circle back again to your research and your thoughts about this, that, you know, the, throughout this last year, we had the pandemic and then the economic crisis and then the Black Lives Matter and the, the sort of disaster of racial injustice in America. I'm, I'm curious in the mutual aid organizations that you're writing the history of, do they become a ground for cross racial political organizing or do they remain largely segregated in that earlier period and 
I ask that because I think that's been on a lot of people's minds this year. What would be sort of the, the sort of broader possibility for politics um, in the United States today? And I, I will not, I'm not talking about a post-racial, some sort of utopian politics, but one where you actually see really strong cross-racial organizing in ways that maybe we haven't seen before. Does history offer us any, any grounds for um, building on that work, things, lessons that can be applied even to today? So my specific groups, um, they do not, um, from what I've found in the archive, they're not doing much cross-racial work. Um, mm -hmm. But interracially, yes, um, they are organizing amongst themselves um, and forming like a nascent uh, Caribbean American um, community. And at the same time, also working with the black um, already established community, African-American community in New York City. And they're really like coming together and coalescing together um, as a black group. Um, and so that definitely comes um, comes through um, in, in the archive uh, from my work, um, how they're coming together and forming at the same time a Caribbean identity, but also a black American identity. And that is just so compelling for me at, to, to do that research um, at that time. I will say that this year, I think we have seen, um, we have seen interracial like cooperation and participation in these, um, in these uh, uprisings and in the movement in ways that we haven't seen in history. And I think that's very like, that's very, uh, that's great to, that's great to see. Um, in ways that we haven't before. Um, and so I think it's promising and it, it makes me hopeful. Um, I think a lot of the young people, a lot of the people that I saw who were part of these movements, who are organizing, who are starting community funds are a lot of young people, a, a lot of young white people um, who are really interested in, in making some radical changes and making some substantive changes. Um, that's really that's really hopeful because we won't be able to change things if it's just uh, minorities or African Americans fighting for this. We need everyone to be a part of it, and I think this year we saw this in a way that I have I haven't seen in the past. So that was really promising. I think that's a, a great point to underscore and to go out on. I just we're going to wrap up now, but I want to make sure people can find the work. Um, I wonder, Dan, can you tell us where we can find, if anything, now or in the future, so we can keep track of this work you're doing? Um, well, uh, very easy. Now you can go to organizinglibrary.nyc and find a completely blank page. Um, so do that at your own peril. Um, and for our video, we're, we're looking for sort of people to distribute the video through and with. Um, the goal in, in both of our, well, all of the projects that we've done together is to move relationally um, and to, so it may be that we, we, we go through MAYC's Instagram account, which please follow each way at MAYC's Instagram account, um, uh, or we may partner with a group to, to distribute it with them. Uh, it's a little up in the air by virtue of sort of, uh, well, you know, building relationships is building relationships. It takes time and, and one does it at the pace of, you know, trust. Okay, so we'll also, can I add quickly? Yeah, please, yeah. Um, so, in the height of the uprisings, Dan and I also, with one of our colleagues, um, Joanne uh, Villalobos Flores, we created this um, <laughs> a, a, like a, a resource guide, reading list um, about 
how to talk about the uprising, um, how to, to understand it for yourselves. And it's called, the website is notariot.com. Uh, there's lots of useful information on that website um, that I think would be really interesting to anyone who is interested in getting involved. There are also um, links for organizations in your local community and, um, and ways that you can participate um, in person and also virtually. So Mutual Aid NYC, notariot.com, and then we'll stay tuned for the video that you've been working on and we'll make sure to hopefully get you back on COVID calls when that's out and talk a little bit more about that and make sure that people can, can find that. I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. And I've been talking today with Dan Joslin and Taisha Maddox about the history of mutual aid organizing and what that's meant in this pandemic year. Thanks to you both. We've had a really large sustained audience today. I think this topic is one that people are really keeping an eye on and I appreciate you sharing your work uh, and your insights from it. Thanks a million for your time today. Thank you. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.